Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Marty Dorschlag. So I'm going to time. Marty Dorschlag uh, at Flanora Wines in Carlton. It's March 9th, 2020. Thanks so much for joining us today, Marty. Happy to do it. Uh, first question, most important question. Why wine? Why wine? Wine, it's... That's a really, um, it's not a really straightforward answer for me anyway, but um, it's, it's several different things. So I grew up in a small town in Ohio, Dublin, Ohio, um, very much a farming town with 500 people when I was born, now 70,000 people after Jack Nicholas, the golfer, came and decided to build uh, his first golf course in the town. So when he built the first golf course in the town, drew a lot of corporate people, a lot of people came and, and uh, moved into the area and now it's 70,000 people and not, not in the town I grew up in. But anyway, so that was part of it. One of them was then about farming. I love farming to me was, is nothing in my family or anything, but it just, I grew up around it. I love being in the small town. I love being around farming. I love growing things. And so, that was one thing that attracted me when I first, um, I've always been around wine when I was in college. My family actually didn't, my family had nothing to do with wine. There was no wine in my family, no background. My family really didn't even drink except for on my mother's side of the family when they lived in Germany, we would go to Germany to visit. Yeah. There was always a bottle of champagne open all day. There was always, there was always something being had. Great meals, great wine, great, great family uh, parties around wine. I would go, when I was little, I just remember the party would start off slowly and then the more champagne that was had, it got more loud and more fun. And so I thought, hmm, that's an interesting combination. So I figured out later in life what that was all about. And so that was a big part of it. Um, when I went to college, all my roommates and all my friends worked in the restaurant industry. And so I was, you know, doing my thing, going to the bar on Saturday night, Friday night, Thursday night, and uh, maybe sometimes Wednesday. And um, we, I would come home and they would be coming home from work and they would be bringing half-drank bottles of wine. I don't remember what they were, but I remember drinking beer a lot. Having that second dinner at night with a bunch of great wine with my buddies was pretty awesome. So I got introduced to wine through that. and. Then when I was a senior in college, I went to Napa for the first time, and I thought that was cool. Didn't really connect with me a lot. I liked it. I thought it was interesting and beautiful area. Um, but then I went to France. I went to Bordeaux in 1995, and that really hit me hard because I went there during harvest, not again, not for wine. I went to go just on a family trip. My brother's in-laws rented a house in Bordeaux and they said, hey, if you want to you know, come and be part of the trip, come on over. So next thing I know, I'm in Bordeaux eating you know, ripe grapes off the vineyard across the street and, and then kind of getting immersed in that European wine culture. And the first place we went to that was open, and actually it was the only place I think that was open, was, was Mouton, right? So here you are at one of the most famous incredible wineries in the world and you're going through it and you're hearing the story and the way everything about the family about just about how uh, the tradition the history everything about it sort of started building up in my brain and then you know the way they do their labeling with every artist every year getting a different um, opportunity to, to to paint the label that really connected with me and resonated with me and I'm like wow if I could do this someday that would be uh, unbelievable so fast forward, um, I went through 20 plus years of, in a family business that was really successful and did really great and lucky enough to be part of that. And at one point uh, just was burned out from what I was doing and wasn't loving what I was doing anymore and took some time off and came into it by approaching what do I want to do with my time and, and that really came into farming. 
So again, it kind of looped around to when I was a kid that I want to grow something. I want to really grow or, or livestock or something. I want to have a farm. Mm -hmm. And so I read a book called The Omnivore's Dilemma. And it was a, you know, a pretty well, Michael Pollan wrote a great book. I had to be probably 2008, nine. I have a feeling, somewhere around then. I read that book and it really connected with me and, and since I live in full time in Washington DC, that farm that he writes about is based in Virginia. It's about two and a half hours away. I went down there and visited that farm and got to, to see how they did what they did and that really intrigued me. And as I kept digging into that, thinking, okay, I want, this is something I'd be interested in doing something in, in a farming perspective, I kept having this thing in my back and my mind going, well, if I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna, I want to, I'd like to grow some grapes. Mm -hmm. Virginia has a bit of a you know, grape growing industry going on, obviously, and, and so I kept digging into that. And then, to me, it's always about, quality was always a big piece of what I wanted to do. So I, I looked at the wines in Virginia, the wines in Virginia are fine, but I really was focused on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And in Virginia, it's just too, the growing conditions aren't favorable to grow Pinot Noir or Chardonnay. Chardonnay is maybe a little more uh, doable, but Pinot Noir, it's just too humid. Mm. And so, um, and I also was really interested in growing, doing things in an organic fashion. And that's just, with the humidity and the pest pressure there, it's really hard to do that there. So I was looking for land in Virginia, even though I was in the back of my mind, I'm like, I don't think this is the right place for me to grow grapes, it, it, but okay, I can do a farm and just to do a little bit of grape growing in Virginia. And so I went around and I was looking at for suitable vineyard sites in Virginia. And I was working with a pretty well-known scientist there, Lucy Morton, who is kind of works with all the, all the uh, vineyard owners down in Virginia and helps them you know, with their, with their site location. And she told me, she goes, if you really want to do Pinot Noir, you should just go to Oregon, but don't stay, just go visit. And so basically I went, came here in April of 2012. And um, like today, you know, this is March, beautiful day in March. It was a beautiful day in April. I woke up, black walnut in, looking over uh, Prince Hill Vineyard, which I didn't know at the time that was it, and looking at Mount Hood, and, and I was like, it, because I arrived in the dark, mm -hmm. and when I got to the top of the mountain there, or top of the hill, I checked in, no big deal, and then woke up the next morning and saw that, and it was pretty, pretty spectacular. So then going through and meeting with different people and talking to different, different people and just tasting the wines, it, about two days later, I called my wife and I said, it's gonna have to be Oregon. <laughs> She's like, what? She was a little bit, um, she wasn't surprised because she knows she's known, we, we've been married for 20 years now. She's not, she wasn't, nothing I do shocks her anymore, but she's like, okay. And so um, that got me to, you know, into Oregon. So that was the kind of the path to wine and the path to Oregon. But it was all really about, the wine part of it was about growing something, but then also the, the wine to me is everything that makes me happy. It's, you know, growing something, it's social, it's real estate, it's building something, it's growing plants, it's growing business, it's growing a company, it's growing a family, right? So my, my whole group of people have become like family and you really work together, harvest, you work like a family, you work hard, long days. And all those things to me, even it's even actually when I envisioned what it would be like, it's actually better than mm -hmm. what I envisioned what it would be like. It's it's really um, it all kind of led to it all grew from that farming perspective to you know what it is today. So we'll back to that in a second, but I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about about your the family business that you were working on yeah. before before you used, uh, what were, what was what were you working on and what what about it kind of made you want to turn toward this. Yeah, so the family business part was, um, well, there's, there's a couple different stories there. It was 1990, I, I went to, I would graduate from college during what um, was not a great job market, basically like 1991, I think was by the time I got out of, out of school. I took a couple extra years to get through. Um, <laughs> probably those, had those Wednesday nights at the bar. Exactly, <laughs> had a lot to do with those friends that I had, but, um, or at least that's what I'll, I'll blame it on. But, um, so when I got out of college, I had a finance degree, real estate finance degree, and the economy, especially on the real estate side, was flat. It was dead flat. And I remember um, 
going into business school, there was a recruiting board up on the wall where they would post all the jobs for, and typically it was, you know, big, big eight, at that time it was big eight, now I think it's big four or big six, whatever, but big eight accounting firms, consulting firms, large companies like Procter & Gamble. I went to Ohio State University, so that was, you know, in Cincinnati. So a lot of big corporations were posting jobs, and every year, as I was, you know, junior year, less jobs, mm -hmm. senior year, less jobs. So by the time I graduated, there were literally no jobs posted anywhere. So my father, um, I'm a first generation born American. My parents are both from Europe. My dad's from uh, Romania. My mother's from Germany. And my dad started this business. Um, he's an architect. He started a business architecture firm. I worked at it when I was a kid. I worked at it when I was 10 years old. You know, summers we worked every year. And um, I had a finance degree and he said, you know, the company was pretty small, it was about 13 people. He said, I need a controller, why don't you come and be my, you know, finance, my accountant, my controller. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. And so um, I was really interested at that time in doing historic renovations of buildings and um, on the real estate side, on the kind of developing side. Mm -hmm. So I went to Charleston, South Carolina, and I interviewed for different jobs. I got in my car, actually drove around kind of that whole zone from Ohio, kind of from Washington, D.C., all the way down to Charleston, South Carolina, looking for a job. Savannah, Georgia was the furthest, I guess, south, because that's south of Charleston. And I was just looking for a job so I could work in that industry. And people looked at me like I was insane, like, you're crazy, and you're not going to get a job doing that. And so, um, I then went back to my dad and said, hey, is that job offer still open? And he said, sure. And um, so I went to go work for him in 1992 full time. And um, that company was an architecture engineering business that ended up growing. Um, but it started, we were doing multi-unit retail uh, architecture work. So for companies like, at the time, it was like Bob Evans. There was a company called York Steakhouse. I don't think it exists anymore. Wendy's. Wendy's, which is based in my hometown, was, was founded in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, McDonald's, you know, a lot of chain fast food stuff and a lot of like casual dining that, mm -hmm. um, you know, back when I was a kid was you know, where most people ate when they went out to eat. So, you know, Red Lobster was the fancy seafood um, place to go out in Ohio, especially. And so that company, though, even though it was small, it was we did work nationally on a national basis. And, you know, timing is everything, I guess. And, and so in 1992, things started getting a little bit, not quite yet, but in about 1994, 1995, things started getting a little bit better. So there was that expansion of the consumer economy, and we were positioned as a company at the right time. So literally from, I think, when I joined the company in 1992, there were 13 people. Probably by 1995, it was about 80 people because the thing... People kept growing, companies kept growing, kept expanding their chains, and, and the country was in a, in a boom that lasted, you know, until pretty much until I left. It lasted pretty much until, till, you know, I left in 2005. It lasted that whole time. So we, were, we grew the business to then include on the front end of the business branding and design work all the way to construction management. And so we, we did work for like companies like Home Depot, Exxon Mobil Gas Station, BP, um, British Petroleum. Mm -hmm. And so that ended up then expanding seven offices across the country. Then I went and opened up an office in Malaysia. And at that point, literally, it was things were going really, really well. Um, but I was just, I just lost my love for it. Mm -hmm. I lost my passion for it. I love the people, which I still, I really like, you know, I was, I was a CFO of the company, COO, CFO. So I would travel to all the different offices and I loved the different cultures of the different places and the people that I worked with, I loved the people. The people were great. The work was fine, but it just wasn't my, I just didn't love it anymore. Mm -hmm. I wasn't as engaged. Mm -hmm. So that's when I took some time off and that really comes into, um, to jump maybe a question, but it really comes into the Flanor. So a Flanor is somebody who takes their time, observes and, and uh, strolls. Basically a Flanor is a stroller, a wanderer. Somebody who takes their time and what they do and they were walking a turtle, you know, is the, the label has a turtle on it because that talks about the pace of your walk should be at a turtle's pace. Mm -hmm. And also that kind of tells me about life too because life was going so fast and so crazy and we're all on our phones all the time. And so I took about three years and I didn't do anything. I read a lot of books and thought about what I wanted to do next. And a lot of that, and then I came across that term Flanor in a book I was reading um, and that kind of resonated with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also to me resonates with wine. Wine should wine's not one of those things you do after you're, you know, 
after you just worked out or something, it's always it's something that you, you're enjoying in a, at a leisurely pace. And I thought that was also part of life, how life should be led. So tell me about uh, you, you. You have this kind of revelation, this kind of Oregon revelation, pr pretty quickly upon your upon your arrival. Yeah. So what happens next? Uh, what at that point? What is your vision? Uh, what are you thinking you're you're going to do? Is it is it pretty much this, or what was your initial kind of goal vision? Yeah. Well, I mean, the initial vision I had was was all really and still is built around quality. I was I really you know like, like I could have definitely. And I, I mean, you go to Virginia and you go to Charlottesville area, you go to the Shenandoah Valley, it's gorgeous. It is beautiful, it's beautiful, different beauty, but it's as beautiful as any, you know, wine country, that's one great thing too. Every place that has wine, grows wine, is beautiful. It's a place you want to spend time in. And Virginia is the same way. It's a really beautiful place. I, we still go down there to this day often because it's just such a beautiful place. The father of wine, you know, American wine, Thomas Jefferson, is, he's in the middle of all that beauty. So. To me, it was about the quality of the wine that we could make and grow here. I saw that. And I saw that a long time ago when, when I was in Ohio in the early 2000s and I was drinking, you know, paying attention to what I was drinking. It was Christum and it was Ken Wright wine, Edelsheim, I think were kind of the common brands you saw a lot of. And those are all really fine quality wines. And so, um, especially, you know, I look at Christum as always sort of the, to me, is the, um, inspiration uh, for, um, from a winemaking perspective in terms of the quality of wine you can make here, there's no ceiling to it. And as I went around here in 2012, I was exposed to all these brands, honestly, that um, people here are, you know, are, are on the tip of everybody's tongue. And when you're living on the East Coast and you're doing your, you know, you're not paying deep attention to all these different brands, um, their, the quality level here jumped out at me, like how great it was. So when I was here, they were mostly, well, they were mostly pouring, two, the first time I came in, they were mostly pouring 2010s, some 11s, mostly 10s, mm -hmm. and some 9s, actually two 9s. So those were the early days of the 9s where they were, you know, showing it, they're probably at their best. But so I was really shocked at how good the quality was. And to me, that's always my philosophy, always in everything we do, quality is the most important thing. So the, the quality of the wine is there. And I had no doubt about that. And I started looking right away. I started, you know, I contacted who somebody who you should talk to too is Peter Bowman. So Peter Bowman is probably the go-to real estate guy here in the Valley. And he's seen a lot. He's been, he grew up in Portland, but he's seen a lot of things that have gone on here over time. So I contacted him through a recommendation from the uh, Looney family. I don't know if you spoke with them yet. So there, there, um, I literally sat down at a restaurant that's no longer there, but that, um, Paul from Recipe, that owns Recipe, he was the chef at Fork, which was in, which is now the Babbitt-Cahan restaurant. Mm -hmm. So I sat at that restaurant, and again, this is something about Oregon that's very unique and um, interesting, is that I sat at that restaurant, um, I stayed at the inn there, the, I think it's still there, the Inner Red Hills, mm -hmm. and then I had, the restaurant below was like fantastic, it was a world-class restaurant. I sat at the chef's counter there, and I'd meet people in the wine industry nonstop. Like I met, you know, Bill and Donna Sweat from, um, from Winterly. And I met uh, Christine Maverdakis, who's one of the f owners in, um, in Antiquaterra. And she actually owned, I think, the building at the time and potentially even the restaurant. But anyway, so we're sitting there talking to these people. Where should you, who should I talk to? They list, you know, they, I should, you should go talk to the Looney family. You know, if you want to start here, look here. They've been here. They're one of the oldest families in the valley. Go talk to them. Go talk to, and they gave me the list of people. One of them was Peter. And so, um, I went to uh, Air Mensa Cellars and tasted there, and I went just all around and, and went to different restaurants and tasted all the different wines, as many as I could, and then went and spoke with Patty Green and you know talked to a bunch of different winemakers and people, and everybody was everybody was, I would say, warm and welcoming, um, not over overtly so. People here are more low key. Um, I think they were more, and they weren't encouraging me to do anything. They were just very helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, if I had a question, they answered it. But they wouldn't volunteer. <laughs> Maybe, you know, they wouldn't necessarily um, uh, go above and beyond. But they were incredibly accommodating in mm -hmm. everything that I wanted to do mm -hmm. or ask about. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was uh, that was my early introduction to Oregon um, in terms of. Uh, 
people were, it's, it was just such a small, it has such a small town vibe to it. It's easy to make progress and meet people at a very um, easy pace. Mm -hmm. So tell me about finding your, your first piece of land here and, and kind of getting, yeah. getting things started. So the first, so I went and looked at several different sites first and, and um, again, because of that Christum connection and liking their wines, I was trying to, I was focusing on Eola Amity Hills first. And I looked at a couple of sites there. One thing too that just had happened, so when I first got here, um, the area was just coming out of sort of that real estate shock from the 2007, 8, 9 um, time. And there were, there were a couple of really large sites that the, um, the California pension um, CalPERS, I guess, mm -hmm. and, and PPV own these sites that were fully uh, trellis. They had trellis, they had irrigation installed. They were beautiful sites. They were, they were down in the Ole Amity Hills. I think they were down in the Monmouth area and in Dallas area. They were a couple hundred acre sites, and I think they ended up being purchased by Kendall Jackson eventually. But I looked at those. They were great financial deals. They were infrastructure was all there, but it was in the middle of nowhere to me. And I think one thing I thought about is I wanted to be within an hour's drive from Portland, anything where I chose. And so basically that kind of put Eola Amity Hills out of the, that circle. Mm -hmm. And so then also another area I really liked, I really liked the wines that were made out of Ribbon Ridge and Chehala Mountain. Also looking at another, uh, that I did mention before, another winery that I, when I, my first trip I came that I really liked the wines from was White Rose. And that to me made me think, about elevation because their their vineyard it has at a really high elevation or not really high but it's at 800 feet plus elevation and so that to me said oh you know I think I really um, love the delicacy to those wines and um, I'd like to kind of make that one of the things I look for something at a high elevation so that kind of took Ribbon Ridge out of it because Ribbon Ridge is a lower elevation but I ended up um, then talking to Peter about it we looked at several different sites all over the valley. And then um, he called me in October, he called me and he said, hey, I think I have something, somebody just called me about. 2012, the Bush tax cuts were expiring. So that was gonna increase capital gains taxes from 20 to 25%. There was a family on Kingsgrade Road, a Hankey family, I think their name was. So the Hankey family owned uh, 44 acres of an old abandoned prune and cherry orchard that they bought in 1990. They didn't touch it and the, everything was pretty dead. I mean, the cherry trees were dead. The prune tree still had some prunes on them, but basically they said they wanted to list it and the only thing they wanted to do was to find somebody who could close before the end of the year so they could save them 20% tax bump. So Peter called me and said, hey, there's this interesting site. You want to come and fly out and take a look at it? I was in D.C. at the time. I said, sure. So I came out and took a look at it. And it like hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, the, you know the saying of that vines like a view? This, this site had the most incredible view. It was, that was the first thing. It was a beautiful site. Um, it was hard to see anything because it was so overgrown with blackberries and trees and dead it looks, I have pictures of it. It looks like a horror movie. A horror, it wouldn't be a great place to film a horror movie. And there was a barn that was falling apart. There was a two-seat portageon, plywood portageon, in the middle of the you know field that was pretty sketchy looking. But you know, I guess people that work together can go to the bathroom together. I guess. <laughs> but basically, there was no no dividing wall in between the two seats. But so basically, um, it looked like a great site, and I I thought, let's uh, you know take the next step. So basically, called Andy Gallagher from Red Hill Soils, another guy you guys should talk to. Andy's. I mean, you probably have heard him, heard his name, but he came out with the backhoe and he dug 24 soil pits and the soils turned out to be really diverse. And so this 44 acre site, it has every single aspect you can ask for. It's at 800, it's between 700 and 820 feet in elevation. So it's high, that high elevation site. It has um, uh, mostly, uh, the, there's rock, rock outcropping, so basically it has a lot of fractured basalt, and then it has some really deep, um, deep kind of consistent soils in it as well. So I just love the diversity of the site, and every acre of it was plantable too, and so that and I and I, the location you know is to me is perfect. It's on Kingsgrade Road, so it's just kind of um, triangulates between Newburgh and Dundee, mm -hmm. closer to Newburgh, 
And I, it kind of checked all the boxes, and then when I saw the soils, it was a no-brainer. So at that point, what were you thinking in terms of, were you thinking uh, full-scale winery operation? Were you thinking vineyard? What was the... I was thinking, so first thing I thought about was more along the lines of vineyard. Um, but then I started crunching the numbers, and with my finance brain, it just made more sense to me to convert the conversion of the grapes to wine. And also, it appealed to me to build a brand, too. But in terms of the finance part of it, um, growing grapes is great, and that's, that's definitely um, uh, satiating my want to grow something, but too. But I thought kind of a more holistic approach to it would also be on the wine side. I never, ever for one minute thought about you know, being a farmer or a winemaker. But I, I love participating and understanding how it all works. But I never thought, you know, I never would call myself a winemaker. I never, ever thought. That was never one of my um, ambitions was to be a winemaker. I just never, I knew that wasn't kind of what, what I wanted to do. But, you know, I love it. But, I, I, you know, I love, to, I love to go to great restaurants and eat. doesn't mean I want to become a chef. So, but I leave it to the experts. And I know that, that there's a lot of expertise to that. So that... Um, that was, I knew eventually that it would grow into that, that whole holistic thing. So let's talk about starting a, starting a brand then. Uh, you, have, yeah. now you have a site, mm -hmm. uh, but now there's everything else you have to do. You have to decide, you have to obviously have to come up with a name, but you also have to come up with the brand and your brand identity. Yeah. So tell me about that, uh, about getting it off the ground and about starting to find people to, to fulfill the vision that you had. Yeah, it's... It's, it's incredible. So, you know, not to knock winemaking or farming, but um, it's all, you know, takes all, a lot of talent to do that, everything. But really, you know, the, <laughs> the hardest thing to do with wine is sell wine, you know, and um, you, it's all about storytelling. I'm okay at that. I'm okay at, at a lot of things, and I think that the thing that I brought together is an amazing team of people who can really, really do all those things really, really well. So when I first got here, I made wine at the Carlton Winemaker Studio. I bought grapes in 2013, and which was a crazy harvest. You know, it's probably the most difficult, challenging harvest since I've been here. Uh, 19 was similar, but not quite as, as crazy. But so um, I bought a little bit of fruit, made it at the Carlton Winemaker Studio under the tutelage of Kelly Kidney, is great. Winemaker has you know her hands in several different projects. Um, so 13, 14, and 15 was all made at the studio. So in 2013, I tasted wine out of a barrel from a, a vineyard called Cyconan. It's on Ribbon Ridge, right around the corner, actually right across the street from Ayers and right around the corner from um, the Looney's mm -hmm. farm and from Brickhouse. Mm -hmm. And so I really, really liked the, the fruit that came out of there. And I ended up leasing that vineyard in 2014. And at that time, it was owned by Matt and Bonnie Sykonen. They, they basically just bought the vineyard to live on the property, and then they sold the fruit. They, it's a seven-acre Pinot vineyard. I really, really liked the diversity in that fruit and that site versus the other Shehalem wines, the other wines I tasted from a higher elevation. So that vineyard is, is um, at about 350 feet in elevation, sedimentary soils, you know, all marine sedimentary soils and has an east-facing slope, real gentle. It's, it's, and again, it's right like across the street on the, facing to the east is Bergstrom, is right there. So you can see the Bergstrom barn from, from the property. So um, I ended up, in 2015, I ended up approaching the owners and asking them if I could buy the vineyard from them. And they said yes. So I, I bought that in 2015, turned that from a conventionally farmed vineyard into organic. Everything we do is organic, right? So again, it's that best-in-class thing. I, I think it's it's just the right thing to do. Whether you know, you can argue whether it grows the best grapes or not. But I know that I feel 100% sure that I don't want to be spraying any Roundup or pesticides. You know, that's that are going to hurt people or mm -hmm. the wines or the you know nature. Right. So that's an important part thing to me. So um, that vineyard was I converted that over to organically farm. Now it's been organically farmed since 2015. But that site is again it's. It's sort of like from a, I always unfortunately or fortunately maybe look at things from a business perspective. It adds diversity to our portfolio. It's a diverse place, and the wines are completely different than the wines that are being made from La Belle Promenade. That vineyard was planted in 2003, so a little bit older vines mm -hmm. too. And it's a you know being part again part of the branding story of it. Ribbon Ridge has a great brand, and so that's a great part of our 
tool in our toolbox there too. So anyway, I made, um, the, in 16, I planted La Belle Promenade, which is the winery or the vineyard I was talking about, the 44 acre vineyard. Mm -hmm. Prepped that site in, in 12 and 13, and then in 14 we planted it. So we planted it and I, for a high elevation perspective, I decided to plant Pinot Meunier, Chardonnay, and Pinot Noir. So in case it was a year like 11, it was a cold vintage, we could make more sparkling wine from that, which we do make sparkling wine right now as well, because I, you know, I like sparkling. I like, I wanted to make what I like to drink too. <laughs> so um, we ended up planting a little bit of Pinot Meunier up there as sort of a, an insurance and diversity of, of uh, growing. And um, uh, that was uh, driven by the elevation and, and kind of what, what the weather what the weather can bring us. But anyway, so in 2016, that vineyard was coming online for the first time. I wanted to um, have, Kelly did a great job with the earlier wines, but I wanted to have a dedicated winemaker just to my project. And at the time, in 2014, I leased a house at Beau Frere from Mike Etzel, right? So Mike was moving into his new house that he just had built, and I met him on a whim too. I think at Red Hills Market I met, I ran into him and just was introduced to him. And I asked him, hey, if you ever know of a house, anybody, if anybody, I was talking to him and a couple of other winemakers that were there at lunch. And I said, hey, if you guys ever know of a house to rent, um, let me know. And Mike said, let me check you out. And if you check out, I might rent you my house. <laughs> and so he, he checked me out. I guess, I guess I checked out. And he and I, then he became my landlord, right? So for two and a half years, I lived at his, on his property. Um, and uh, it, was, it was great. It was great to be you know, next to one of the great wineries in Oregon, but also just he was very warm and welcoming to my wife and myself. Um, and you know, I, I spent, at that time, I spent about half my time here over the year, half my year here. And so um, that was great. And that, along with that, I met Grant Coulter, who ended up, you know, who, who's our winemaker right now, who I ended up approaching and asking him for a recommendation for a winemaker. And he wanted to throw his hat in the ring. Mm -hmm. So that worked out great, and that was a no-brainer for me. And so Grant then joined in February 2016. So it was important for me that somebody could pay attention, individual attention to the vineyard, also the vineyard's young. He had a lot of good experience with vineyard and winemaking, and so he came in and, and uh, managed the vineyard and um, uh, the, made the start making the wines from, from day one. There. What did you see in him that made him the person to take your vision to that level? What, what, what about him that, you talk about quality, yeah. you talk about, you know, what was it about him that, that spoke to you? Well, interesting, um, when I was living in the house up there, I was working um, on my own wines at the studio with Kelly, you know, under her tutelage too, but um, the winemaker studio is a very frenetic place to make wine. It's crazy, there's, you know, three pounds of crap in a two pound bag sometimes. It's a great place. I mean, I like, I learned so much in there. Again, they're great winemakers over there and I was making wine next to some really, really wonderful people. Um, but it's, it's, it's wild. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a busy, crazy place. So once in a while when I would leave there and go back home, um, I would stop by Beaufort to see what they were up to, shoot the breeze and also just, you know, if I can help out, do some punch downs, do whatever. And, and just, you know, chat with, with, uh, with the people over there. So I just saw the way that Grant worked with people. He's very good at teach, uh, teaching people. He's very patient. Um, Mike's a very demanding person. And so, you know, and, and also the quality of the wine that they make too is obviously at a very high level. And so um, I just, and frankly, I just like, you know, like, like Grant, you know, and I think I, wanna, I don't want to work with people I don't like as just people, whether they're really talented or not. But the talent is also very, very important. So when you have both of those going on, that's a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. So um, just, just based on where Grant, the experience that he has, and also the fact that this is a new project and, and somebody who's flexible and not set in their ways, and Grant's very, very, um, very flexible. And I am a big believer in not being stuck in methodology of, in terms of not being stuck in, in being a recipe winemaker, and Grant seems to not have that. He adjusts to the, to the uh, growing season and to uh, 
So you're just trying new things too. Mm-hmm. What about building the rest of your team? I, I know uh, we, we, we were out here last week, we met Russell and yeah. another of your early hires. Tell me about right. as you were looking for, for, the, for, the, for those kind of people, uh, obviously you weren't gonna be here all the time, you had to put your talent to people in place. Yeah. Uh, what, were you, what were you looking for? Yeah, so, so that's another thing too. So Russell, um, I was in Washington um, with our first Vintage of Wines release 2013 and I uh, live about three blocks away from the Four Seasons, and I walked uh, a bottle of wine down to taste with the Psalm at the Four Seasons. And there's a wine bar right next to the Four Seasons that they also own called Eno. And I um, well, first I I'll walk in there first and talk, taste with them. I walked to the front, and there was somebody sweeping the front door. I said, "Who's the you know? Is there a wine buyer here? Or can I you know? Can I um, meet the person who's in charge of buying the wine?" And he said, well, that, that's me, you know, and, and uh, it ended up being Russell and I poured the wine for him and he really liked it. Actually, I left the bottle. I didn't pour it for him. I actually left him the bottle because he was busy and he, um, he brought the wine into the bar and um, liked it. And we sort of lost touch for about a year. And then I went to go, well, actually not even a year. It was just a couple of months. I went to go follow up to see if he wanted to buy any more wine and he was gone. Yeah, oh, man, he's gone. That's too bad. And so um, they said they were, they were uh, I think Russell bought too much Riesling or something like that. So they had to work through like <laughs> a couple pallets of Riesling he bought. So they were like, we're not buying any new wine at this time. And so um, I had been then searching for a distributor in DC and I was looking at the different distributors, see if I knew anybody and Russell's name popped up. And so I shot him an email. He said, oh, you know, let me talk to the the boss, big boss man, and let me see what's going on. There was a little transition at that place going on at the time. The partnership was kind of breaking up. And um, so that didn't happen. But then I posted for, in, I think in the winter of 2016, between 16 and 17, I posted for a hospitality job. And sure enough, I got a bunch of resumes, actually a lot of resumes from Napa, which was interesting. But then Russell's name popped up and in the, you know, he sent a resume and I was like, oh, I remember that guy. And um, I flew him out here and, you know, and I actually, well, I interviewed him in DC for a couple of interviews and then flew him out here and it was just a no brainer. And the thing with Russell that besides just being a nice guy and a, and a, and a uh, pleasant guy to be with is that um, he's incredibly uh, connected with hospitality. So his, you know, his connection goes back to New York and working for some really, really great hospitality outfits. and. Um, to me, that was another piece of the puzzle I thought about from the first minute I started this, mm-hmm. was that you've got to, if you don't have at least very good wine, don't bother. Mm-hmm. If you don't have, you know, I think that's a, that to me is like the price of entry, the cost of, of, of playing the game. Mm-hmm. You have to have very good wine. If you don't, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't be here at all. So that was really important, but also to me in the farming, it's, it's, to me, it all has equal weight. The winemaking, the hospitality, the farming. Mm-hmm. So from a, from a hospitality standpoint, Russell was a no-brainer because he just had that thing. He had that attention to detail of what, and you know, we talk about all the time. So our philosophy is based on the New York restaurateur, Danny Meyer, who has a Union Square Hospitality Group, 11 Madison Park, and he you know, wrote the book, Setting the Table, which we give to everybody that, that works here, no matter where they work. Because it's really important that when you come in here that you're a guest in our home. You're not just, you know, standing at a wine bar wanting a splash or something, that you're actually being taken care of and being treated like you're a guest in our house. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was the next, Russell was really kind of the key into that and he understood that, um, that philosophy and he, he, uh, he can deliver that. And then shortly thereafter I was working with Sterling Fox who's a great known another person you should speak with we have he's been you have good yeah I bet but Sterling so Sterling was farming our vineyard he planted it and he was farming it and at the same time a great guy but I wanted to have somebody similar to 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 the winemaking side I wanted to have somebody that was dedicated to our vineyard Mm -hmm. and so one of his people Jaime Cantu who you should also talk to He's been here, plant, he's planted, you know, half of Dundee Hills, if not more. And he planted all of Stoller, he planted a lot of Domain Druin, if not all of it. He was working for Sterling and for a short stint, he'd been working for Argyle for 30 years. And he wanted to slow down a little bit, and so he went to go over for Sterling, and he ended up, and he, you can, he can tell you the story, but he ended up more or less spending a lot of time in a pickup truck, driving to 
this vineyard, that vineyard. And he liked what we were doing, I think, and he approached me after the 2017 growing season, and he's like, hey, we ever thought about you know, bringing your vineyard management in-house? And I had thought about it. And as soon as he even like opened his mouth up, I'm like, you wanna do it? You know, again, he's the same thing. Russell, Grant, um, Jaime, that's like the best of the best. And to me, that, that's really important. Jaime does a wonderful job at the vineyard. He knows every single plant, and I think he's a happy person because he's not driving around anymore. And same thing with Argyle. They have a lot of different vineyards. I think he's now he can really focus and pay attention, and his knowledge base is incredible. So, and he, and again, great just people you'd hang out with even if you weren't working with them you know mm -hmm. so that to me was really important mm -hmm. and then also the rest of our hospitality and sales team brooke jefferson and kelly campbell um, brooke was an intern for us in 2017 and she and i worked side by side together in the 2017 harvest and she is uh, she was just another great person to work to work with and just Tenacious is like a word I would use to describe her, and so she's doing all of our organ sales and club uh, sales, and she's just a really, um, and, and everybody sort of has that also that, and it's not, to me it's not a really important thing, but everybody has this love of wine. And I think it's, it's um, not to me something where you have to like know the, you know, all the Grand Cru's in Burgundy with the, you know, by name and by alphabetic order. But you definitely have to have a connection to it, and it has to be part of you know your who you are, and um, all all the team members have that. And Kelly Campbell, who runs our tasting room downstairs, Kelly was a DDO for several years again. Lovely person, and just somebody you'd want to hang out with, and people gravitate towards her. And and we're in the we're in the business of we're in the hospitality business. You know, you want to have people that are warm and welcoming, and you're that that are the face of your company. You know, and that's what they are. And they're just, they make my life easy that I, you know, that, like you said, I'm not here all the time. And um, I think it makes my life so much easier f to have them here. Once you get those kinds of people hired and, and you're not here all the time, tell me what you, how you view your role now. What is, what is your role at Flinner? What do you do? Yeah, I think my role, well, I mean, it's, it's kind of the, the um, it's the stereotypical CEO role it's it's strategy so i think one of the advantages i have and i don't know um uh, a lot of other people that have it is that i think it's an advantage not to be here the whole time because basically i think when you when you're in this small um uh, community in this small i don't know describe a community but this um this kind of like industry group mm -hmm. in this small zone you sort of get caught in this, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you get, you get, it's a small circle, and you get caught kind of in this vortex of kind of looking what everybody's doing. I always tell my people, I don't really care what X winery's doing, I really am interested in what Tesla's doing. I'm interested in what Apple's doing. I'm in interested in what other companies are doing, and like to make, to, to do better, you know, have better customer service. You know, like, what, the, the, one of the most precious things in life right now is time. And if you can't, we, in the wine business, we can't really, um, we can't be more time efficient with, we can't provide people more time, but we can enhance the time that they spend, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, that's something that I think about more than just like um, specific wine-related issues. Like, you know, I don't, I don't choose the, the, or the Coopers we use for the, you know, I, that's Grant's job. You know, and I'm not going to say, I'm not going to call myself, I know some people call themselves a winemaker and they're not necessarily the winemaker, okay? So they're, they just want to have their, it's the same thing, I didn't call Dorschlag Winery, even though that sounds more like a brewery anyway, name as I always say. But so I didn't want to have it named after me because I didn't want to be the person that everybody went to. When we first started my other architecture company, it was named after my father. So when we went to go visit clients, if my dad wasn't there, they were like, oh, you don't think that much of us because you didn't bring the main guy, right? So to me, I wanted, to, I wanted it to be about the wine and I wanted it to be about the place. I wanted it to be about La Belle Promenade and Flannery Vineyard and the winery. I didn't want it to be about one star. Mm -hmm. And that's why to me, it's like everybody, and I, nothing makes me happier when I get an email from somebody, I just got one this weekend, that tells me 
how great of a team we have and they name six people. They don't just say you have a great vineyard manager, a great hospitality person, a great winemaker. Mm -hmm. They tell me that your team is unbelievable from top to bottom. And that to me, like, that is what it's all about to me. I don't care if anybody ever knows who my, what my name is. But they, I do care that they know who, who Flaneur is and what Flaneur Wines is. Mm -hmm. But I don't care if they know I'm associated with it or not. I could care less. So, um, to me, it's, um, it's all about that, that quality of everything, from experience to wine to vineyard. Like, we sell, we sell some, some fruit right now, and, um, you know, the, uh, most, most of the buyers are from not from, they're a few from Oregon, but most are from California. Mm -hmm. And they are just ringing, you know, crazy about how great the quality of the fruit they get is. Mm -hmm. It has a lot to do with Oregon, too. So, to me, I'd... I'd want to, um, and, I, and to kind of come back to your question, so being on the East Coast, I think gives me a distinct advantage, but also my role is, is operating as a kind of strategist, mm -hmm. providing capital, right? Providing uh, strategy and providing sort of the vision for what I want to do. And also, like I said, coming and leaving, and then when you kind of get caught, um, when you are, are uh, in one place, you don't really see, I want to call it the faults, but you don't see like the little details. You don't know when you go into your house at home, you go home every night, you might not see the details of, you know, that crack in the wall. But when I walk into this place and I see something like that, I haven't been here for a couple of weeks, it, I fix it or I, you know, I, I bring it up because maybe you don't notice it if you're here all the time. And also I think it just gives you, it gives you fresh perspective to travel the country. Like, you know, I was just in New York last week and you, you talk to people about Oregon wine and they all know Pinot Noir, and that's sort of what Oregon has built, or we've built a reputation on. Mm -hmm. But then you start talking about, you know, Willamette Valley Chardonnay, and they're like, oh, I've heard of that, I've never really tried it. I'm like, it's pretty spectacular. You know, you guys should know more about that. Even in, like, you know, the wine capital of the United States, to me, is, you know, San Francisco or New York. Mm -hmm. That exposure to that, and the fact that I three-hour drive away from there, I can go up there for the day if I want to. and. Mm -hmm. and and talk about what we're doing and introduce people to our wines. So I think it's a distinct advantage for me not to be here, really. Mm -hmm. And let everybody here not feel like they're being micromanaged. So let's talk about the, this space and obviously the, the kind of the, yeah. the, the recent transition for Fleur Flaneur. So tell me about the, the, all of it, how, how you knew this was available, what, how mm -hmm. you saw this as a potential space for you, and then the actual transition into it. Yeah, so... Um, when I first brought my wife here to the valley and we were going through, uh, I was showing her all the different towns and all the different places, we drove literally through every town in the valley and I think this was the last town. And she's been taking it all in. She's very, she's an arch interior architect and she's very aesthetically driven, as, as am I, I'm aesthetically driven too. But she was driving through Carlton and she said, what's this town? And I said, it's called Carlton. She goes, oh, I like this. And we were driving from Yamhill through Main Street and um, then she saw this building. She goes, what's that? I said, no, I, I think it's an old grain elevator. And she's like, you should buy that. And I'm like, why? And she goes, because she goes, it's an iconic building. She goes, I've been through this whole town and this whole valley. And she goes, there's a lot of interesting things about it. But she goes, there's nothing like that. And um, it's sitting there empty. You should, you should see if you could buy it. So I, I called Peter and I said, uh, hey, Peter, who, what's up with that grain elevator? And he said, well, Ken Wright owns it. And there was rumor that something was going to happen to it a couple years ago, but there's been lots of rumors about it and nothing ever happens mm -hmm. to it. I said, could you call him and see if he would be interested in selling it? So he did, and Ken came back and said, let's meet and talk about it. So we talked for a little bit, and he walked me through the building, and it was a, me it was a, a mess, basically. <laughs> it was, he was storing stuff in it, but it was like dark, and it was dusty and dirty. It was a mess. And... Um, we, and we got done talking is, you know, yeah, I would sell it to you. And he gave me a number and we literally uh, shook hands on it. I said, okay, I'll, I'll take it. I'll buy it. And then um, I bought it and I kind of looked at it for a little bit and thought about what I was going to do with it and kind of just got to know it, mm -hmm. like spent some time knowing it. And right away, the first thing that town wanted to do was they said, can we, can we, you know, hold our haunted house in your building? I'm like, sure, <laughs> whatever. So they basically created a haunted house in the building, right? For both, both the North and the South tower. And there used to be another building mm -hmm. next door that were now where the, uh, where the garden and the parking lot is. And, um, they created this incredible haunted house. It was amazing. Like literally it was in the, in the 
Oregonian paper. People were coming from all over the area within like hours. Because I, I came here one night, it was raining, people were standing in line, and they tra traveled from hours just to come to this haunted house because it was so <laughs> much fun. And so it raised about 25 grand for the you know, local um, food pantry. I'm like, oh, okay, great. So they did it for a couple years, like two or three years. And so while they were doing that, I started taking the, the building that was on the side. I was worried about this because kids were sneaking in here. I'd come in here, there'd be a cigarette on the floor, burned out. I'm like, oh, this, this building's going to burn down. And so basically I started taking part of it down. And I, I hired a, a guy out of Sheridan. Oh, Rich, I can't remember his last name. Now. Um, he has a company called Wood is Wonderful. And so he came out with a crew, Rich, and he's a great guy. Um, and uh, they took every board nail by nail out, took all the siding off the building, and I stored it into, I built a barn, I stored, um, I stored all the wood that, that was pulled out of here uh, in a barn and used some of it for the renovation too. But so over time I just kept peeling it away and then I did a design for the larger North Tower and I got a price back for it and it was just way too high, way too high. And also from a scale perspective, um, originally Ken told me he was gonna potentially tear down this building and keep the taller one. But then I looked at this smaller building and it's older, it's the 1920s. It has a little bit more, it has more detail, more interest, more older timbers and just kind of, I looked at it and started peeling away the layers of all the junk and the dirt in here. And just, I was gonna do a winery end of tasting room here, but then I just thought, you know, let's just do a tasting space in this. Mm -hmm. So literally, it took from 2013 till you know, 2019 to get it completed and get it designed and get it, I mean, it had been redesigned and done and over. And um, we had to basically build an entire, um, to keep the interior of the building the way it is, we had to pretty much build a new building on the outside of the old. So we dug a foundation around the outside of the building and we built a new building kind of like that hugs the old building and then push that building down to the foundation. Of the, of the new foundation. So it would have been a lot cheaper, obviously, to tear the building down. But again, that kind of ties into the organic farming and just the care and attention to everything we do is that it would have been easier and cheaper to tear the building down, but where's this, there's no soul left, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just it's, it speaks to our values. Our values are, you know, the same thing at the Bell Promenade, there's an old barn there that um, you know, people, I oh, should just, you're going to tear that down, right? I'm like, no, no, we're going to repurpose that barn and we're going to fix it up. And now we have tastings we hold in that barn up there. And so to me, it was really important. And again, kind of goes full circle into when I was, you know, 22 years old looking for work. I wanted to do historic renovations of old buildings. And this just like, you know, talks to me. I live in, in DC. We live in an 1800s house. So old architecture. My dad's an architect, right? So we, we, I was big, you know, architecture. I still am a big architecture uh, buff, so it's just an important thing to me. It's also such an iconic building. When I was tearing the side building down for the town, people were, kids were coming up to me. Are you gonna tear the whole building down? No, 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 I'm not. I'm just gonna tear down at this part. And they were, oh, who? They were relieved. <laughs> and so basically, it's such an iconic building for the county, I think, mm -hmm. too, mm -hmm. that I wouldn't be able to, you know, I wouldn't be able to, to I'll probably walk around if I tore the building down, but I didn't want to anyway. But it's sort of one of those things where um, it's uh, it's people. I'm having people right now contacting me from all over the world. They've seen links to it or articles written about it, and they're coming to visit because they own a grain elevator in Montana and they want to do something with it. And now they're coming here. It's an inspirational thing for people to come and see. So I think that's pretty cool. What do you? envisioning as you look forward for this space obviously it's got it's it's huge you have a lot of potential here. yeah uh, we're in a room now that's obviously not finished yet so yeah what are you envisioning for the rest of the space and for the kind of experiences you'll be able to offer yeah so the the space to me and one thing that was always important to me whenever I went to a winery that was open to the public or not um, uh, not by a you know appointment only type thing was that um, it's always sort of a fight to get up to the bar to get something, get a, get a tasting. It sort of just felt like a battle. And I wanted to have everybody be able to come in here again, kind of be like guests in our home. So you walk in the front door here, um, everything is comfortable seating or tables that you have to, you, you, it's not, um, you have tableside service so people come and, and spend time with you and talk to you and listen to you and find out kind of what, why you're here and what you want to do. But it just, I, I just want to provide this relaxed, comfortable mm -hmm. 
guest type experience so it's not everybody kind of belling up to a bar. And it's also the people that just like, you know, sit there and they can appreciate the architecture and, and, and live in a piece of history. You know, we have pictures and um, this, this, is a, this was a real working building. I mean, you know, you look around close enough, there's, you know, grain dust is gonna be around forever and ever. You know, this stuff gets in every, every nook and cranny, but um, that's part of the building. And I want people to kind of be able to understand and look at the building and see how it was used in a past time because I think that a building, when it sits empty, kind of starts to, f it just kind of degrades and falls apart. Mm -hmm. And now it's going to get, it's getting used in life. And um, I want people just to, exp it's, it's part of Oregon history. I mean, you've got trees down there that are 400 and 500 years old that are big beams and columns that came out of the coast range that were original growth timbers. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of Oregon history. And I think that's important as part of what we do to talk about that and to show that off. With uh, with either the wine or, or the experience or, or both, what's what's the ultimate uh, what would be the ultimate takeaway someone could have? What's the ultimate compliment someone could pay Flaneur uh, after either experiencing or, or, or having the wine or both? Yeah, um, I think the most important thing, I mean, is that they they have an enjoyable time. But it's it's sort of you know we're, we're here to make delicious wines. That's kind of the thing to, that we we talk about. It's not about it's not to me, it's not as much to me. One thing that getting into this business that I discovered is that that yeah we're all wine geeks and especially in the industry. But most of the country, most of the people, that's a very small group of people. So I want people to come in here and not be intimidated. I want them to I want them to want to come back. I want them to be warm and welcomed and take away and say wow those wines were fantastic because I think a lot of people. Um, kind of come to experience that they're not going to either, there's something going to be missing. They're not either going to have really, really great wines, but the setting's not going to be great, or the hospitality's not going to be great, mm -hmm. or they're going to have great hospitality and the wines are going to be great. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's like qual every, every part of what we're doing, I want to deliver at the highest quality. So that's the most important thing to me. So as you look ahead uh, for Flanor, you have the new space you just got into last year. And congratulations, by the way. This is an Thank amazing you. space. Thank you. Uh, and clearly a labor of, of much time and love. <laughs> uh, tell me about what you're looking ahead for, uh, both for the brand uh, and for the space here. Yeah. As you look five, ten years in the future. Yeah, so we just purchased across the... Well, first of all, you know, on the train... Tr I say train track, it's not there anymore. But behind the building, there was a train track. And that's going to turn into rails to trails. So across... It's going to be a bike path from McMinnville up to Hag Lake. So across that future rails to trails we purchased the 9,000 square foot building there we're going to turn it into our winery so um, that's going to be a project that's going to take us to the next level being able to to make a little bit more wine but also do again increase the quality of wine we make at a higher level by having you know white separate white and red barrel rooms and have the all the proper layout for space and equipment to make the best wine we can make so that's next along the, the um, along the way and also just to kind of keep creating, getting creative on what experiences we can offer to our guests and um, really kind of make our brand and help. I mean, to me, it's also, you know, a lot about Oregon. So, you know, we, when I go and when I'm in D.C., people think of me as the Oregon guy, mm -hmm. you know, even though I'm not from here all the time. I spend a lot of time here, but I talk about it so much that people, have, I think, feel like I'm from here. Mm -hmm. And so that's another big piece of it, too, is that I think that raising the level of quality of wine here. The wine quality already is incredible. And to kind of keep that trajectory going, but also just to... So when you... Yeah, no, it's just, it's just um, I think that um, a lot of, uh, of people are, are starting to hear about, and they, they've known about Oregon for a long period of time, but they keep getting it reinforced by tasting the wines. And so when I go to different restaurants and show the wines off, people are getting that constant reinforcement of how great Oregon wine is, and I want to be part of that. Mm -hmm. Do you have a size in mind as you look ahead? Do you have a, a number of cases you want to make? Not really. I mean, right now we're making between five and 6,000 cases every year, and um, I think this, you know, I'm, my concern is just keeping an eye on the quality. I think somewhere between uh, five and 8,000 cases probably sounds like about the right number. Mm -hmm. 
What about uh, the industry in general? Obviously, you you had a pretty interesting introduction to it, mm -hmm. uh, uh, stay, staying over there by uh, Dickie Rass Vineyard, uh, etc. But uh, I'm curious, uh, what has changed in Oregon wine since you've become part of it or become familiar with it? Uh, what does it look like now versus versus where it was when you came yeah. to it? Well, I, I think, to me, it's mostly, if not all, positive. Again, I think that the wines are getting nothing but better. And so when I talk about like things like Oregon Pinot Camp and like IPNC, those are all getting to be uh, well-known events and well-known things. And so whenever I talk about Oregon when I'm on the road or out on the East Coast, um, it's it has a 100% positive reaction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's becoming, uh, the changes that's becoming um, is that uh, it's not that much of a surprise anymore. Mm -hmm. And also the quality, the quality wine's gotten better and better. And Chardonnay's becoming, since I started, Chardonnay's becoming much more well-known, actually surprisingly quickly, how the quality of the Chardonnay is increasing. Also the, the bubbles, people are making sparkling wine. Mm -hmm. And the sparkling wine um, movement, largely, and I'm sure some of you talked to, should talk to Andrew um, Davis. Davis, yeah. I was gonna say Andrew, Andrew Turner, who owns the wine shop there in Newburgh. But Andrew uh, Davis, it's been a part of that, and he's helped us. Mm -hmm. But but I think that um, the quality level and the variety of wine. So we just planted a little bit of Gruner Veltliner, some Elegate, um, up on our Le Bar Promenade site. Just again, to increase the kind of that diversity of of mm -hmm. you know Swiss Swiss Army knife it a little bit. But just to be able to again, I you know I love Pinot Noir, and I probably drink mostly that. But you know once in a while you want to drink something else, right? So basically have that capability to enjoy it yourself, but also so your guests can enjoy something different too. And what about as you look ahead for Oregon wine, what is it, what's going to happen in the next decade or so? What is, what is it going to look like in 2030, for example? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think about that. I think about there seem to be, I, I feel like I came in in the, in the, the kind of, I don't know what generation you call what, what we've done here, maybe fourth, fifth, I don't know what it is. but. Um, I'm just curious in, in a lot of those first and second generation winemakers, a lot of them, you know, have, have carried over, but I wonder um, who, uh, who will be the next kind of generation of winemakers mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. and in terms of owners and people who come across and, and um, do this. I mean, it's a big, it's a big commitment to, to start something new mm -hmm. and, you know, there are a lot of projects out there. Um, that are in their third generation. And when I say third generation, I guess I'm talking about things that have started in the 80s and 90s of where they're gonna to go to. I don't know. I, I, I think that's a big, to me, um, it's an interesting 2030, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I honestly can't, I can't even um, venture to guess, depends on a lot of different things. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, it seems like uh, logically, it's such a great place to be that I think I would consider it um, a wise thing to continue the trajectory that we're on right now, but I don't know. Are there concerns you have as you look ahead? Are there concerns for Oregon wine in particular that uh, on the horizon that maybe you're uh, keeping an eye on? Um, I don't know. Um, Hmm. I think that, again, I, just, I don't know, maybe I'm foolishly optimistic, but I always look at it from a standpoint of, you know, global warming perspective. We're in the, we're in, maybe it could become, you know, it is becoming an issue here too, but maybe it goes like crosses the line. Like right now, I think again, weather-wise, we're in a really, really great place. You know, we get, an, we get a fair amount of rainfall and, the temperatures, though they've been increasing, and um, compared to our friends in California, I think we feel like we're in a really good geographic place. So, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I'm trying to think. It's always, I mean, there's always a challenge in selling wine. Wine's really difficult to sell. I think people don't realize that. People, I mean, I, I, that was one thing to me. Um, it's a lot of work. I've never worked harder in my life, but I love every minute of it. But it's hard, it's hard to sell wine. 
someone were to come to you and say they were curious, or interested in making their start in Oregon wine, mm -hmm. uh, what would your words of wisdom to them be? Um, I'd say probably start small, and I think that it's um, always, you have to have a focus. I'd always focus on quality. I mean, I think that, that the, um, the small winemaker or wine grower who um, can really focus on the quality and, and keep it small at a start can control their destiny. Right. So that's all the questions that I have for you okay. today. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Anything I, we I didn't cover? I don't think so. I don't think so. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, guys. Putting up with our camera here. Uh, thanks for sharing your time today, sharing your stories, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.